Okay, welcome everybody. I am excited today. This is going to be a new one for me. I've got Brian Lenny on, not necessarily a company-specific uh, interviewer today, but Brian Lenny. I'm going to say if you don't know who Brian Lenny is, but you've somehow made it onto my subscriber list, uh, let me know and I'll buy you a beer. That'll make me feel pretty good because Brian Lenny obviously is a, is a very well-known name in this industry, right? If you if you do what I did and you listened, you know, you cut your teeth listening to podcasts, you'll know this guy's name, you'll know his voice. Junior Stock Review, Mining Stock Education, right? He's, he's got his fingers in a lot of pies in this industry, and I'm very excited to have you on Brian thanks for showing up thanks for having me Matthew yeah so I mean the the kind of the crux of this conversation is that you got a new project field notes right it's you know beautifully shot I'll have to ask you about the drone that you've got and stuff like that right but uh, beautifully, beautifully shot series I love the site visits you know intimate well articulated and, and, and useful not just kind of puff pieces conversations with mining insiders right uh, and so yeah I'm excited to have you on here to talk about that and maybe just a couple of things you know a little bit of a grab bag here too but Maybe if you don't mind, I mean, no place to start like the beginning, right? And you kind of do this in your first uh, episode of, of Field Notes, but do you mind just telling quickly just kind of your origin story? Like, how, how did you end up where you are today in this sector that you're in? Sure. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. So I'm an engineer by trade out of school. I worked in uh, pharmaceuticals. That actually didn't last very long, and I went to kind of like the polar opposite in terms of cleanliness and got into the steel industry. <laughs> and uh, so I was a process engineer on the floor, you know, working with the guys on improving the, the process line, specifically in the rolling mill side of things. Um, I got a so-called promotion into management and uh, I, I took the promotion and I ended up not liking it that much. It didn't take long for me to understand that, you know, uh, managing of people isn't necessarily for everybody. And, uh, and that's something introspective and most people have to learn by experiencing. So, you know, at that same time, I'd kind of gotten into the junior mining world first through gold and silver and monetary policy, that sort of thing. You go down the rabbit hole and invariably, I think it leads most to junior mining stocks. And, uh, and so I was dabbling in them while I was making money um, and making mistakes and, and, and learning. And uh, in 2013, I made a, a pretty big decision. Um, if, if you recall, the, the high of the last cycle was in 2011. And at that time, I didn't really make that much money and I didn't really lose any. Um, I was kind of in that kind of even spot because I was making enough mistakes that I took away from what the bull market was doing. But in 2013, I said to myself, hey, the market's on this big slide. I want, I want to make a discernible difference in my life. I don't like my job. And so what I did and you know, having an understanding wife was a big part of it. I sold my house and took two thirds of the equity and put it into uh, what I thought were the best juniors. And I, you know, honestly, Matthew, like there's a lot of luck that was involved in that. Um, I seemingly picked a handful of probably the best performing juniors, you know, in that, in that uprise in 2016. And, uh, but mind you, I had to wait three years to get it. So I made that big change in 2013. And then if you'll recall, um, 2016 was the point where we really saw a change in market sentiment. And uh, with that change in sentiment, I left um, my, my career in, in steel manufacturing and became an investor full time and really haven't looked back. And so over the last seven years, I've been sort of writing um, about my investments in the sector. And in 2020, I started a subscriber paid newsletter, uh, Junior Stock Review Premium. And, uh, and then just like you said, this year, I've started doing um, a site visit video series called Field Notes. And that's kind of my, my focus too right now. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, they are so far so good. You're only a few episodes in. When, well, I, I'm going off script here, but I have to, when does the next one drop? We got. I'm, I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating it. <laughs> it's been tough. It's been tough. So I had I had uh, another site visit scheduled, and it got pushed back. And that's kind of what I'm waiting for right now is to get it done. And hopefully that's before the end of the year. But we'll see. You know, these things, the market turmoil, the the difficulties with raising money um and drilling and such you know schedules are kind of all over the place so i don't have an exact date yet um but i'm hoping before the end of the year no and i get that too things are fluid and people don't know where, where the next dollar is coming from um yeah i mean so i do want to talk about field notes but I, i'm hoping that i can kind of just pick your brain about who you are and and, and your story and kind of what you represent if i mean i think that it's fair to call you a a symbol or a figure in the industry that people know and 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 want to learn from, right? So, um, which maybe you know, go back to twenty twelve, not what you were expecting to be, you know, ten or eleven years in the future, but here you are, right? Uh, but maybe just you know, not to go to order too much, but you even mentioned it's kind of funny. You said you got your your cut your teeth in pharmaceuticals. What? And you kind of already answered this, but what drew you to junior mining in particular, right? I mean, there's lots of other kind of penthouse or outhouse, microcraft sectors, fintech, yeah, pharma, pharmaceuticals, right? Why, what, what happened here that you took you here and not, yeah, pharma, pharmacies, I guess. Sure. Um, so really it was, uh, it was during the, I guess you could say the courting pro- or process with my wife. Um, I was at her house for the first time and I met her older brother and uh, we got to talking and he started talking about gold and silver and monetary policy and this guy named Doug Casey. And it kind of, I was kind of overwhelmed, you know, like I'd always been, well, I wouldn't say um, metals oriented, but of course, be, taking engineering, you know, I know I've got some metallurgy mm-hmm. background. Um, I'm interested in it, but I never really focused on the precious metal, especially. So I started hearing this guy who, who, who I know is smart, but at the time it says, I thought to myself, seems smart. And, uh, and so I kind of went down that rabbit hole. So that's where it started. And then invariably, I think when you start, especially if you, if you attach to a guy like Doug Casey or some of the, the, the talking heads that talk about monetary policy, I think invariably they flow you into, uh, junior mining stocks. And I'll tell you, it's completely different. And I would say, you know, it's like a word of caution to investors or people that are interested in monetary policy. Junior mining stocks and monetary policy and precious metals, the reasons for owning precious metal, physical metals or some sort of derivative of physical metal does not coincide with junior mining companies. It's totally different and it's not for everybody. Uh, but for me, I was I was hooked. And unfortunately, one of the first things that happens is I doubled my money on the first investment I made. And I'm telling you, like, it was probably about the worst thing that could have happened. <laughs> and, you know, in retrospect, I remember listening to uh, Rick Rule give a, a speech and he's, he said one of his, his his terms is, you know, confusing a bull market with brains. And I didn't get mm. it when he first said it. And then after I was like, oh, you know what? That's exactly what happened in that those early days. And uh, I was pretty loose with my investments, especially to begin with, uh, because it had come too easily. And so unfortunately, you know, one of the things that I think probably everybody has to do is lose some money first, <clears throat> that it really makes you uh, be more discerning in, in what you're going to put your money in and have a better plan. And uh, that's exactly what happened to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, it is a good phrase. He's got a couple of good aphorisms, the Rick Rulisms, and I think that's one that carries value, right? Is don't, don't mistake, don't mistake macro sectors for your own genius, right? Um, right. I got, I have, I got to ask, I mean, so what are just out of curiosity, what, you know, what are some of your W's that you got that you hang your hat on? Like, what are some of the names that you, you, uh, you pulled out there in the early times? Uh, gold standard ventures, uh, Ivanhoe mines, reservoir minerals, 
um, Orion Resources. It was that first iteration. Um, again, there was a couple of Be Ivan Bebek stories. So it goes back to Keegan, uh, Caden, and then of course Orion. Um, what else? <laughs> uh, what about a big? Those were the big ones. Those were yeah. the big ones. Like the reservoir minerals was big enough. Like that was that was the down payment on my my house when I rebought. And uh, so there was some significance to those ones. And Ivanhoe was like, I remember buying that at 75 cents. And I think I sold probably the most of the position in the like five to $6 range. So, mm. you know, like when you have, when you have bigger wins like that, those are the ones that sort of stick out. Yeah, absolutely. And so I got to ask flip side to that big, big L's. What's your capital L? Capital oh, L losses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, what do you like in percentage or monetary? <laughs> how how about the one that stings? How about the one that like the one that got away or the one that kind of sticks in your brain or the one that yeah the, that stuck with you after a bit? Uh, it's probably the stuff that's happened lately. Um, like there's a couple companies that I should have. Oh, I'll give you for instance. So I, I have some connections to Canstar Resources, a Newfoundland exploration company. And the, there's a few reasons why I got into it. The, the, the basis of the project, the people that were involved, some of the investors that were involved got in there. And this is like, if you, if you look back when that, that company got restarted uh, with Rob Brugman, that CEO, uh, Newfoundland was super hot. And that, that thing went from 18 cents, I think is where the placement was that I got in and where I started coverage in my newsletter. And it went up to, I think a high of 60 something. And I did not take enough profits on that top end. And then it just fell apart, you know, and I should have seen it coming. Um, but it's one of those things that can get out, get away from you. And I regret not taking more profits off the table. If you want to talk about de-risking, especially when it comes to expiration, I think when you've got like a 200% gain or even a hundred percent gain, those are opportunities for you to take money off the table and sit there with house money and, and just say, Hey, whatever happens with this, I can, I don't really have to worry that much um, because I got my principal back and depending on what's going on in your portfolio, you can, you can know that, but still make that mistake. And uh, that's, I regret not taking more off the table. So it did sting a little bit extra. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, those are the ones that always get me too. It's not the losses. It's the, it's the, it's not the it's not the realized losses. It's the lost unrealized gains that always seem to kind of stick in my brain, right? right. But uh, no, yeah, I, I kind of warned you. And I'll give you the credit. This I'll credit you on air here. You know, I I had offered to let you see a couple of questions in advance, and you told me heck no, right? But I did warn you. I wanted to talk about just risk mitigation, right? And so I'm glad that you kind of are are, are kind of taking us in this angle, and I. I'll chase that rabbit if you wish, because I do want to talk about field notes because it is a it's a really cool project. But uh, why do, yeah, why don't we just move into risk mitigation? Because I think that's already a question that's coming up. I've been writing these down feverishly to make sure that I remember, you know, in in 15 minutes from now. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you in terms of you know reflecting back on your time, like you are a success story, right? And I mean, it was almost the same thing, like like a professional athlete. Whether you wanted to or not, your success has made you a role model for people that that follow you now, right? And so your actions and your decisions and your choices you know have larger consequences than just your own life if 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 that makes sense right um people look to you for for guidance i suppose right which like i say can maybe be a little daunting but you know you said you mentioned ivanhoe 75 cents to five bucks right uh my question that i wanted to talk to you about is is risk mitigation right when do you when do you de-risk like if we're going to talk about kind of concrete moments you obviously then don't have a set you know i, I double my money 
I doubled my money, take half out or sell half my shares to break even and carry house money. I mean, do you have a, like a, a what, what, what is your guiding principles around when to de-risk? I don't have, I don't have a set necessary plan. It all depends. Each company is different and each, mm. each way things are going to unravel is different. And you know, the market at any moment in time is, is different. And so like all the, all those things that we talk, you know, whether it's selling on a double or selling on this or even a 20 or 30% gain, sometimes I do that depending on the outlook. I see how the market's behaving. If there's some other like external risk that has popped up, maybe it's jurisdictional, maybe it's, it's whatever. So there isn't one piece to the puzzle or one thing that I could say, okay, you do this. But what I'll say is this, this is, this is, I've, I've, I've said this numerous times in presentations, it all starts with the individual investor. And I think if you get that right, then you're going to be way ahead of the rest of the market. So what does that mean? So if, what it means is you first start with yourself and what your understanding is of the business, what type of company you're going to invest in. So, you know, if you're picking expiration, you know, obviously expiration is at one end of the spectrum of risk. First, you have to realize that. And second, you have to realize the knowledge you have to have to understand the drill results you're seeing or see the, if you're getting a bunch of soil samples or grab samples. Do you know what that means? If you don't, but you're still willing to make the risk, it's a bad combo because I think mm -hmm. that's how a lot of people end up losing money because the exploration is very sexy. And especially if you have a good promoter, like these guys really, really know how to sell and it can be a really bad combo. And that's unfortunately where I think a lot of people get attracted to this business. You know, the generalists or the general retail, they hear a splashy result. They really don't know what it means, but a good promoter comes on. He says, oh, this is 10 million ounces and they get in it and they end up losing money. Really? I think, you know, you have to be cognizant of what you know and what you don't know the risk and also the timeline for, for being right. So if they've got a, a bunch of catalysts and one of the catalysts is the completion of, of a metallurgical study, which they're going to, they're going to increase the recovery using such and such process, but it's going to, it's three phased, a good company to, as an example is FPX nickel. I've been a, a long-term holder of FPX nickel. Metallurgy was a big uh, sticking point. It maybe still is for a lot of investors because it's a wear right nickel. It's not a sulfide. It's not a laterite. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit different. They had a three phase program that took probably the better half of two years to complete. And really on that phase three, you know, if you, if you thought you were going to get the, the yes answer or even whatever answer you got after phase one, the market probably didn't even care. And so you had to be willing to wait two years to get that yes answer at the end of that phase three trial. And maybe even then, if the, if the answers are what you want, if, depending on what market you're in, you still may not get recognized. Uh, in FBX's case, they did, and they've seen some great share price appreciation, but it's a great example of how, you know, people will say, okay, I want to make a hundred percent on my money and I want to make it in the next three months. I'm like, well, good luck because you're <laughs> probably, you're probably going to be on the expiration side and you're going to have to take a ton of risk to get that hundred percent. Whereas if you, you find a good company that's got all those other intangibles, like good people, cash and a plan. Um, and then, then you have a realistic timeline to making that hundred percent. And it's probably not three months unless we're in this rip roaring bull market. And that's what I think, you know, another thing people have to understand is where you are in that market cycle, because a bull cycle is completely different or the bull portion of the cycle is completely different than the bear cycle. And in these bear cycles, you know, most of the stuff that's gaining traction is expiration based. 
And uh, again, there's there's differences between full out grassroots exploration and then, you know, companies that have delineated uh, some sort of resource or have a mm. PEA and they're expanding. So the two different things and you have to know where you are in that cycle. So all those things go into self-awareness. And if you get all those right and you're honest with yourself, I think that almost sets the, your stage for how you're going to de-risk that um that company in the future because if you say oh this is going to take two years for this three-phase metallurgical program till i get that yes answer then you should be okay with sort of riding the waves up and down and holding your position now it, it doesn't mean it's going to be right or you're going to be right but that's the reality of how the the market works and then i mm -hmm. so again if you if you get the this the self stuff uh figured out i think it sets the stage of how you're going to de-risk and then you can add the intangibles like maybe having a market view and taking more money off the table if things start to get rocky. Like let's say in this last two weeks uh, with what's going on in the Middle East, maybe for some people that have their, let's say they own a company that's in um, the Sudan or Egypt. Egypt's a pretty hot exploration. I don't know if you know much about the gold exploration going on in, in Egypt, but it's pretty exciting stuff. It's like a brand new frontier they've opened up. You know, for me, I made it. I was looking at a private company investment in Egypt, um, and for now, I'm putting that on the the side table because with what's going on and what Egypt's involvement may or may not be, uh, to me, it's not worth the risk. So I think you know, you, again, you start with the baseline, and then as you get more comfortable, you gain more knowledge, then you can start adding intangibles to that, such as jurisdictional risk or mm. whatever else might be going on in that specific metal market that affects that company. Mm -hmm. No, well, I mean, yeah, well said, and there's there's a bunch that I want to jump into there, but maybe I will focus, like you say, kind of what you were saying about just knowing yourself and who you are, right? And and so for me, I think that the thing thing that I always harp on is is you the the utter and desperate need for for patience and the the control of your emotions, right? That that I think that impatience and greed that you kind of referenced, right? That people want that, that you you go to exploration and discovery plays because you want that hundred hundred that the two three four x and one or two three four months. Uh, and, but you know, so that, that that greed can be a dangerous thing. But then also on the other side, you know, once when you are in the doldrums and you are in a moment of despair and 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 that bad habit of always selling at the bottom that I think lots of people have, I guess maybe the question I have is, I mean, is there a way, so, I mean, I guess myself, I mean, I guess it was just experience and maybe a little bit of my own, my own personality where I'm, I'm decent at managing or controlling and, and articulating my emotions in a way that lets me not let them control my guide or guide my actions. But I mean, I guess for yourself, I mean, is this a matter of different personality types doing better or worse in different sectors? Or is there just what, when you started, when you first started out, were there skill sets or habits that maybe you tried to develop or acquire to help manage that portion of things? So first off, I would say there probably is different personality types that suit investing and others that don't. Um, and, but I, I do think you can set up a system for yourself to sort of put you in a position to, to better, uh, be better or more successful. Uh, so one of the things I started off with doing, especially early on is like, I literally had a piece of paper on the side of my desk and I had a set of rules that I wrote down. And, you know, one of them at the beginning was on a double, I take half off the table. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, if you do a rules-based or if you have a rules-based approach, I think it cuts out emotion because if you say, okay, look, I don't care what's going on. If you can make that deal with yourself, I don't care what's going on. I'm going to trade according to these rules. So maybe your first rule is I only buy companies that are selling at a certain discount of value. Uh, because one of the big parts, it's not necessarily de-risking, but it's, it's, it's 
coming in at a good price. You know, price mm-hmm. is the best de-risker out there. If you can buy mm-hmm. stuff cheaply, then you're you're sitting in a much better position. So if you're looking at those kind of asymmetric uh, plays, then you put yourself in a really good position. So if you can come up with a figure, it's like, oh, I need something that's selling at, you know, this is 25 cents on the dollar. And that's the price. And if it's, if it's higher than that, I don't touch it. Um, and then another rule is I sell on a double. Okay, now you've just kind of de-risked yourself. You've bought something that um, is already cheap, but has, you know, there's, we can get into the ingredients for a good company, but has all those ingredients, you made the thing, and then you're going to de-risk it at, on a double. Right there, I would say if most people probably did that, they'd be sitting pretty good um, in terms of their, their P&L at the end of the year. And, uh, and, and so those are the kind of things that you can do. And you, again, you can become more nuanced with that rules-based approach, but literally that's what I did because I had to come up with a system that was repeatable and mm-hmm. kept me in kind of that box, um, of, of how to deploy money and how to take money off the table. Like I tell you though, Matthew, like one of the biggest things I learned and it was from a friend and a mentor, uh, was learning how to sell. So many people are obsessed with the buy side and the buy side is super important. But I'm telling you really for me, and it, it came, it was probably 2018, 2019 when I really got what he was trying to tell me about selling. And uh, it's so important. And that's, you know, I think one of the things that's helped me is the fact that I write down everything about my investment. And I have kind of this anchor to my audience in terms of being responsible for what I say and, and what I invest in, because I, it really makes me think about it and articulate it so that I understand it. And I think that's probably another thing that people miss is that they'll have something formulated in their head and they have some foggy idea and they're like, okay, I'm going to put the money in. But then you put it on paper. If you're trying to sell it, the idea to somebody else, that's really what probably would crystallize it. And even if you're not going to publish the report, like you don't need to do that, but you should be able to write it and hand it to somebody and say, this is why I'm invested in that company. And if you can't do that, then there is a missing link there. Um, and you're either in the wrong type of company or uh, maybe you shouldn't be investing, period. Well, and that's a great transition, too. I mean, like I say, I got a little chicken scratch note here of things that I want to ask you about. I mean, then that that one, the, the, the necessity for, and it's not just geological knowledge, which is maybe where the conversation was going for me or the question started. But I mean, I think maybe in our previous conversation, I mentioned this, too, like the Dunning-Kruger syndrome, right, where people with, uh, you know, moderate or, or low levels of knowledge not realizing what they don't know, think they have a high understanding of, of a certain topic, right? And and that's my concern and my and that's my fear. And I, I you know, I, I guess I take a certain degree of responsibility for people too. I want I want retail to succeed. I want people to make money. I want everybody to to that that dream of financial freedom, which is why people come here, right? And my concern is is that that, that greed it always comes back to emotions for me, clouds your judgment and makes you make these rash decisions in pursuit of upside when you don't know what you don't know. And you said you said yourself like the knowns and the unknowns and trying to understand those. Uh, I guess you know. What, what's the question I'm coming to here? What like what what categories or or knowledges do you think? I mean, maybe like, let's break this down and chunk it out. Maybe just part one is: Do you need to be a geo? And maybe that's not a formal PGO with a forty degree, but like, do do you do you need to have how strong of a geological basis do you need to have to succeed as a, as an investor in this sector? Uh, I think okay, I'll, I'll split it. I'll say like if you want to invest in a producer or a royalty company, I think it's mostly balance sheet analysis that you're mm-hmm. really going to have to do. Like that's 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 the 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 bulk of the analysis. Again, in my view, so do you need the geological backing? It, it never it never hurts in 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 this industry. But I think on that end of the spectrum, I think you can get away with it no problem. The developers, 
um, you know, which I would call anybody that has, let's say, a, a resource or some sort of economic study. I think it's a mix. Like it's, it is the truly in-between ground where I think, you know, again, more geological knowledge is going to help you, but not isn't necessarily going to be the backbone of, of what that company is all about. However, it depends what catalysts you have for that company to be successful. Now, if it's exploration, you probably have to have somewhat of an understanding. Um, if they've got, let's say, a million ounces and they really, to get critical mass, they need to get a million and a half or two million ounces. Being, being able to understand if that's even possible, whether it's, you know, down dip or whether there's some lateral extension of the deposit, what are the odds of it actually expanding or if maybe there's a satellite. That's the kind of thing. If you're gonna put if you're gonna put your money into that company and know that they have to expand that deposit, that's a geological type of decision, or the probability is totally linked to ge ge geology. So I would say in those cases, yeah, you, do, you unfortunately you do need a for probably a fairly high acumen in in geology. On the other side, if it's a four million ounce deposit that has critical mass, that has a PEA, and really these guys are you know they're, they're just going through. Uh, the steps towards uh, feasibility study and construction decision, and you're buying in a market like this that is depressed, and you're probably buying it on pennies of the dollar. Well, then you know it probably doesn't matter that much, you know, if you have that good of knowledge. Now, again, all that stuff helps. Like if you can read a, a technical report, which I, I imagine most people don't do, um, then these things are going to help you. But I'm just trying to make the point that again, it's a sliding scale, and then the the, the far end of it is the expiration, and in many cases. Um, you need to have a good understanding of what exactly you're dealing with. I think you can set up, like in terms of grassroots, let's say, I think you can set up some pretty basic criteria of what you want to look for. But then if you were going to gauge potential between, let's say, a handful, you got five companies in a spreadsheet. So how are you going to differentiate which one that you invest in? Well, it's probably going to come down to not only the people and how much you know about them, but also what the potential is on those, those uh, plots of ground. And again, that's going to take some geological understanding to, to get. Now, again, with all these things, if you pick the right people and if you know these people and now to the general retail investor, this next point isn't going to mean much. Um, it shouldn't mean much, but for someone like me, for instance, I'm an engineer, not a geo. I do have, I've done a fair amount of reading on geology, uh, but I don't profess to be an expert by any means in geology. But I'm more comfortable with people that I know if I understand, if I understand who the person is, if there's a level of trust, um, I'm more, I'm more accustomed to, you know, trusting the things that they tell me to a certain degree. And I won't be, you know, always looking for an, another opinion on, on a, on a drill result or on a soil sample or, or what, whatever. Um, but I do, at least in my, I do have access to people that are geologists and, and I can ask them questions if, if need be. But I think if you get those people right and there's a level of trust that you can, um, count on, then I think it makes it a little bit easier to make some decisions that might border on what you need a geologist for. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, excellent. I mean, a couple of things you said there. I mean, I, I can't agree enough about this. The it's such a people industry. It's funny, you know, all the, all the geological data and years and years of above and brown, but below ground exploration, but really comes down to people for me. That, that 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 there are people that I do trust and I don't trust with my money, right? And I think that maybe maybe something that I'm I'm trying to articulate myself is that I think a lot of new investors are very flippant with their decisions and and the money that that they are putting into the market without fully without being cognizant of what exactly they're doing, right? Um, and so, yeah, just that 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 need to trust 
Uh, but I, I have a, an interesting question for you for you because this is another thing that I always laugh at. I mean, reading technical reports, what a, what a, what a, what a concept reading things that the companies produce, right. To learn about the company. Right. And I, and it's all always, you know, on social media or, or in my own correspondence, people asking me where I get this information. Well, it's in the animal information form, right. <laughs> or it's, it's in the technical report. I mean, to check these things out. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, I, not really a question there, but I mean, if we're, if I'm trying to have a conversation with you about things for people to do and to improve their own kind of, uh, their own jurisprudence, read the damn, read the damn reports. Right. But I guess maybe the question I have for you is, you know, if you, I want to, I want to kind of get inside your head as you, let's say it's day one, you come across an interesting story and I want to maybe try to like understand that process where it comes from, you know, first time you've heard of a company to, you know, X amount of time later where you consider yourself to have achieved a full position. Right. I guess, uh, how long before you make your, and again, I know there's not necessarily a, like a hard rule here, but like how long typically is it before you discover a company to you make your first buy? Like what, what's, how long is your due diligence process there? Um, well, I'll, first I'll say like, if I don't know the people at all, it's much longer. Um, yeah. If it's, if it's linked to people that I know and that are involved um, and, or maybe if there's a, a friend or, or, or somebody that I know that, that I respect and I respect their opinion and they're putting money in that goes a long way with me. And it's not that I don't do my own research. I do, but you know, some of the points that I might deliberate on more for a week or two, you know, it's, it's like, okay, if he, if he's okay with this aspect of it, then, then I, I can't be, or maybe I go with a lesser position or such. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a hard, fast rule, but I would say for the companies that I don't know, it, it, it takes, it can take a while, especially in this market. I'm in no hurry to make mm -hmm, a hard fast mm -hmm. decision. And usually what happens is um, like the first thing I do uh, is go through and I'll compare market cap. And if the company has a technical study, I'll look right away to what the underlying uh, MPV is, you know, after tax MPV is and compare it to the market cap, you know, where they're trading. And if the differential is at that high level is good to begin with, then I'll look at it, like who the people are, how much cash they have, maybe, you know, GNA is another thing. Like you can tell a lot by a company, by the salaries mm -hmm. that they take. Um, so looking at their, you know, their, their managed, their information circular that comes out yearly, again, using CDAR to your advantage and, and looking at this stuff. Usually I'll have looked at that stuff before I have the call, but then I'll go to a call mm -hmm. before I do a DCF or anything like that. I'll do the phone call. And even though I know how much management's taking, I ask them, um, how much are they burning? Uh, how much money's going into the ground? The, these sorts of questions. And then depending on how they answer, cause I've had some guys, maybe, maybe they weren't lying. Maybe they just truly didn't know, <laughs> but uh, th there's certain things like that are kind of like disqualifiers for me. So, um, and some guys get offended by me asking about salaries and such, but um, that's kind of the, the flow of how I go. If I don't know the company at all, it's kind of that high level stuff. And if, if it piques my interest and it's get a phone call, that's over probably a one or two week period. And then for these companies, kind of where I like to stick and do most of my investing is kind of in the developer. So, you know, from basically a maiden resource type of, of stage to feasibility study. And then, so depending on where they are, I, I like construct my own DCF play with the different factors that I think might affect the company and where they're going and then see what that differential is. And then it's probably another follow-up call to kind of rejig my DCF to be a little bit more stringent. 
Um, and then of course I always do a pretty big discount on my own analysis because I know I'm going to make some mistakes. Um, but that's sort of the process I go. So it's, it's quite variable. It can be, it can be a week and it can be three months. <laughs> it, uh, and that's the kind of thing. But like right now, like I said, most, most of the companies that I, right now that are new to me, they go into a, a spreadsheet they, and there's a few fact, high level factors that I look at and I'm just monitoring that. And then I'll have maybe some prices that I'll, focus on um, if, if it hits that price is like, oh, you know what? Maybe I do need to make a decision on this because it's selling so cheaply. Mm. Um, so that's that's kind of my process. And again, it changes when we're in a bull market because in a bull market, I think you can be a little bit more loose. Uh, the problem is, especially for, I think for the, the general investor out there, you probably don't want to let those habits uh, being more loose, you know, come into you too much and neither do I, but I'll be honest, like I, it, it does creep in when that bull market strikes. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my process. Yeah, no, excellent. Thank you. And I mean, I just like, again, just reflecting on that, if you end up, if you're doing, uh, if you are reading technical reports and calling the and calling the company, you're probably doing more than ninety five percent of journalists who are in the sector, right? And so, people looking for an edge, knowledge is your edge in this sector. And and, and again, people do themselves a disservice when they don't uh, do these things, right? Is or at least in my thoughts, right? So maybe you know on the the other side of that coin, flip side to that is, I want to talk about dollar cost dollar cost averaging, right? Is that so? You you know you've made your you've 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 made your investing decision. You have you know you, you've got your little starter position done. I mean. Ha- how how many tranches do you buy in through? How how long does it take? I mean, you know, maybe my overarching question I have is like, how much cash do you keep on hand as a general rule? But yeah, how patient are you in buying in? Of course, yeah, this, this is going to change based on bull or bear. But but yeah, like right now, you know, if you're going to start buying today for a company A, you know, how many tranches are you looking at before you consider yourself to be to be fully invested? Uh, so again, I don't have a hard, fast rule on that. Mm-hmm. It, it, like it just depends and it, it depends on a number of things. It depends on how much I like the company, how close I think the catalysts for share price appreciation are. Um, it depends what's going on in the, the world, um, and the financial markets to, you know, how people are putting money into the market or not putting money into the market. Like I said, right. if you wanted to, like right now, I'm super slow. At, at doing it unless like there's like a catalyst i haven't found a company yet that has necessarily that catalyst that i would say oh for sure like this is gonna spur market interest because i think what you're seeing especially right now the market is highly volatile and mm-hmm. there is some of the news even good news outside of like a really banger of a drill hole um is being sold it's a it's liquidity it's more like last year in 2022 where everything was basically a liquidity event um, mm-hmm. So in, in those instances, I'm pretty slow and, you know, it could be uh, 20 tranches, you know, if, if it could be like super small positions to get up to that maybe five or 10% range is where I like to bring positions in, in terms of my portfolio. Um, and that's, that, those are, again, those are my wheelhouse type positions. Expiration is probably, it depends on the company again, but I'm less prone to having uh, expiration companies occupy more than 5% of my portfolio. Um, and so obviously it, it can be quicker <laughs> in accumulating an expiration company than a developer. But again, like it's, and like, I guess that's, I guess maybe with the overarching thing for me is just, I don't think there, especially the more experience you get, I don't think there's, there is any hard, fast rules. I think very early on, if you want to, if you want to be successful, it's probably good if you do set yourself some rules and keep yourself in this kind of box. Uh, but 
with maybe the comfort I have in, with myself and in, in, in the market, um, I feel like I can kind of move with, with the market to a degree. And uh, it's taken, you know, it's taken time for me to get there, but um, it's definitely not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, I mean, fundamentally it's accurate right? that as the story changes, as your investment thesis changes, you know, to the positive, you, yeah, why would you de-risk it half if, the, if it hasn't achieved a fair value proposition, you know, that, that double, that having a doubling, and you know, it makes sense. I guess maybe I, I'll, I'll tie this up soon here because I do want to talk to you about field notes, but I mean, I just, maybe on a couple more questions here, just, I mean, looking back and you kind of, again, this is a nice, a decent transition here, but, you know, looking back at your earlier years, uh, if you had a chance to do things over again, or if you could have learned from your own mistakes in some fashion, you can reflect on that. What are, what are some things that maybe you would have a, approached differently or, or knowledges you wish you'd had before you jumped in kind of thing? What, what, what are, what, what are some reflections that if you could talk to Brian Lenny from 2012 that you'd tell him or from, um, it's, it's so hard because I don't know if I could, you, you learn through experience if for the most part. So I don't know, like I learned a lot by listening to podcasts and stuff like that. Like that's, that's really how I cut my teeth and, and made the transition. But, you know, being a full-time investor, it's been such a different journey and I've had to make some mistakes and really learn the importance of selling. Um, and you can't, I don't think you can necessarily do like, I, because this is the problem is I think, people will end up blowing themselves up right at the beginning and they don't even get a chance to learn anything uh, because they lose the money so quick. And I think one of the big things about junior resource sector investing is because it's so cyclical. Again, you have to buy when things are low and you have to sell (laughs) when things are higher and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to sell in the, the bold portion, but that's ideal. Um, but when you're you're making money on your investment, you have to take profits off the table, and that looks differently. You know all the stuff we talked about. So looking back on that thing, you know it's it's hard for me to say because I would I, like I wish I could just transport myself today and then back then because I would have done a lot better. <laughs> but but um, you know all those things kind of came in the timing that I needed them to come in. And I think the biggest thing for people is to if you've got let's say three thousand dollars to invest don't put $3,000 into one company. Um, don't put it into three companies. You probably, and unfortunately, you're probably looking at maybe five to eight and it's small uh, and you're not gonna make a big difference yet. But the, I think the bigger point is that you're gonna learn how to move money in the market. And th- these are the kind of environments that I think that you can learn a ton. Um, and you have to be cognizant and I think you have to write about, you know, what you're, what you're experiencing. Like, that's another thing I was doing more so back then was I was kind of journaling about my mistakes and mostly about the negative <laughs> and what I, what, what I was doing wrong. And really it, that's what brings stuff to the forefront. Um, when it comes to like mentors and stuff like that, I'm 100%. Like if you go back to prior to 2016, 2017, I had no contact with anybody that I considered a mentor. It was it was all via you know the internet through YouTube and podcasts and whatever, and uh, and I had to make those decisions. But what a difference it made when you had somebody else to talk to. So what I'm trying to say is you know again mixing in with what you uh, what you're doing on the investment front. I think you have to go to conferences. I think you have to meet like-minded people that are invested in the same thing. 
and you know understand how different people are making investments you know what they think about your investments and you know be open to criticism on on what you're invested in and and go from there and all these things sort of lead you down that path that each individual is going to have to make so you know, it, it's a t really tough question because I, I would I, I would want to transfer myself back and say, hey, look, I got all this knowledge now and <laughs> I'm ready to rock. And I, I do know how I would do it differently. And I think one of the big things maybe is, but again, I don't think I, it's realistic that you do it, but I would be more concentrated. Like that's, that's the thing. Like I was spread out in probably at different points. I was spread out in probably too many names. And then when I was right, I put all this time in. Um, I didn't make a big difference mm -hmm. or it didn't make a big difference. And I think at some point you need to transfer that. You need to go from, you know, 1% positions in, in all your companies to taking 10% or 5% and, and making the certain. So when you're right, you're right. But there is a flip side when you're wrong, you know, you're wrong. So that's, that's probably one of those bigger points. But like I said, everybody has to kind of go through their own journey. And then I think the biggest thing is to make it, make sure you last long enough that you can kind of experience the ups and downs of the market, because that's what you need to be a, a concrete investor. And, and honestly, now kind of being in the second cycle of my investing career, I can just see, you know, how many more lessons that I'm learning now. And I, and I do this every day. So, you know, there's, there's so much to learn and it never, it never stops. Hmm. So. No, excellent. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, what you say about don't blow up your account. I mean, it, it does resonate with me a lot. It goes back to that, that greed and that emotion and the desire for people to make that life changing amount of money, not realizing that even if, I mean, you can beat, you can beat the S, you know, you can beat the S&P 500 by, you know, multiple orders of magnitude and it still takes a few years to get there in this sector, right? To, to get to that, that, that life changing money people are kind of tantalizingly chasing. Um, maybe this is a, I'll, we'll end here, but just, one more, uh, just how many positions do you hold then, right? I mean, you're kind of chatting about five or 10 is your, is your major for your major buys. It, what's a, what's a sweet spot for you? Well, it's, it, it, again, it depends. It really depends on how many expiration companies are in my portfolio. Right now <laughs> I cover, I've got 14, 14 companies in the junior stock free premium portfolio and, uh, it hit a high. I think I had 18, which, which is like the peak of, of what I like. It's just hard enough to keep up with with 14, let alone 18. So right now, this is a pretty good position. Um, I'm sitting just under 10% cash and uh, I'm definitely willing to deploy. Like I've been buying small tranches in, in basically my top 10 companies that I in the portfolio. It's one thing I do is I rank the companies and it's according to different criteria and it's constantly changing. Uh, but that's usually, I've got a higher weighting of my portfolio so it can exceed or go down. Um, like even developers, there's a couple of developers that have kind of been laggards and I've, I've dropped the percentage, uh, my, my personal portfolio to concentrate that, um, that money into companies, I think have better catalysts and more market recognition. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of how I've got my, my portfolio focused and, uh, oil being uh, a pretty big focus and considering the things that are going on today, that might end up being a better, uh, investment that I even thought, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Eh? Um, so why don't we, now that we're 40 minutes in the conversation, do you want to talk about, tell me about field notes, right? I mean, so yeah, like it's it's a great, I, I really like it. Yeah, it's gorgeous to watch. It's great conversations, great stories. Um, what's, like, what was its genesis? How did you, how did this come about? Uh, and then I guess, what are you hoping to build with it moving forward? Sure. Uh, so the genesis, it goes, actually goes back pretty far. Um, site visits. Well, you know, actually, 
from the very beginning throughout my my career in steel manufacturing which was about a decade i loved going to other plants i loved going into the field and and seeing what other people were doing and and bringing that stuff back and then it kind of parlayed into the the investing world and especially with mining companies going doing the site visits and you know early on i saw in 2017 so this is like a less than a year into my my full-time investor uh, foray and i did a site visit or did a tour myself you know i funded it everything i went to newfoundland for well over a week and went to i don't know four properties and i met a bunch of different people talked to some other investors and i was like wow the the, the you can't you can't beat it um going to sites seeing the stuff like you can see pictures and aerials and you can get a feel for it but then once you're there your boots on the ground you can see the changes in topography like for one uh i was an early investor in uh anaconda i say early investor um i was in 2017 that was before a lot of people were talking about it so i was out there and point roos was a really interesting project like the the topography of it i don't know if you know anaconda or now signal uh, but their Point Roos project just outside of Bayvert was was really interesting. And, you know, the way that the tailings pit was and um, kind of, you know, where the mill was and how everything was set up, its proximity to the different communities, its proximity to the Ming mine, um, these different things. So you, I could never, you could never replace being there. And so from very early on, I had the idea, like, you know what, I'd love to film this at some point. And I actually did film part of it and it just never went anywhere. I didn't know how to do anything with video. So... Fast forward that to today, and I thought, you know, we're at the bottom of a market. I've got, I have a privileged position in being able to access site visits. Um, I want to bring my readers along with me to site, and I want to do it in a in a very classy and and maybe different way with this kind of docu series style. Mm-hmm. And so, episode one started off with a good background on me. So, if you're interested to know more about me and my story, you start with episode one. And then episode two, we fly out to central BC uh, to see FPX Nichols, uh, Baptiste Nickel Project, which is, of course, in the Dakar district, um, just outside of uh, Fort St. James. And uh, again, it was I think it's an excellent video. It shows the different different aspects of the project, how you get there, the communities that are going to be feeding this potentially with labor in the future. Um, and then you get to get to know a little bit more about the people. And I think that's, again, another big aspect about investing because you see these people at conferences and maybe it's a very like, uh, very professional type meeting where you just talk about the company and maybe you don't really know what the person's all about while in the video. And then if you ever get to go to the bar or something like this with these guys, then you just kind of sort of see the real person. And that's the other aspect. Um, is to learn more about these people, see them in sort of a different uh, view and what you can gauge from that. And so that's that's what I'm trying to relate to my audience. And um, that's what I hope to do with, with this series is bring you to the companies that I'm personally invested in and see if you see the same reasons uh, for investing in this company as, as I do and try to do it in the, the best form possible. And that's with the film crew that I, I work with. Yeah, and I mean, so far so good from that. Yeah, good stories and stories stories told well, which is a pretty neat neat combination. I guess maybe like the question I want to ask is, I mean, you know, again, trying to focus on the fact that you 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 are a, a spokesperson of sort for for retail investors and people look to you. What are you like? What would you what you, what do you hope people's takeaways are from this from this pro- process or series from you? Like, what are you um, you know if they're 
yeah, if they're going to learn or be better at investors or something, what, what, what are you hoping that they gain from this that they can take with them to be meaningfully, to be meaningfully different or better as investors? Well, I think the, the baseline, if you look at the FPX video, the, the points that we cover, whether it's myself or Martin talking, um, are the points that I think the investors should be looking at in terms of how they, they make an investment um, in, in any junior company. Um, so that baseline process of how to kind of go through a company, I think, is, is present um, and it's, it's done in a story format. So I think that, you know, the, the viewers are sort of learning the process without even like sitting there and saying, hey, writing down necessarily notes. Like if you see the stuff that comes up on the screen, the stuff that Martin's talking about are the key points um, to that process. So I think that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect is just is just looking where someone like me is 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 putting their money, um, and see if you can it, well if you if you do see the value in, in in mirroring those sort of those kind of it doesn't have to necessarily be in those companies specifically, but companies like that um, that have let's say large resources, well located maybe have some X factors because I think in this market there's a there's a lot that's lost in mediocrity, and I think that it really you have to find a company that has maybe what you call an X factor or something that differentiates themselves from the pack. And I think like company with FPX, for instance, the, what people, it's also one of the things that strikes against it is that aware, right? Okay. The, the fact that it's a different type of nickel mineralization has a lot of people scared, but the other side to it is it's also what makes it such an unbelievable project. They're going to make a high grades uh, nickel concentrate. So it's going to be a 60% nickel concentrate. Well, that nickel con, that's in contrast to a nickel sulfide, which is like between 10 and 15%. So that's, they have four times less trucks or rail or whatever per load of nickel than any other, uh, any other nickel sulfide out there. Um, they've got access to the Pacific. They just did a JV with Panasonic and Toyota. The reason why they're doing it is because of that low carbon uh, footprint in comparison to everything else. The aware right, when you, when you process it through this we're talking basically magnetics here they they separate the nickel from the iron ore essentially and uh, what you're left with one of the minerals in there is called brucite and brucite has a natural tendency to sequester carbon now there's variables on how much carbon it can sequester but there is a natural sequestering without any added energy and so these are these sort of things are the sort of x factors that i think in this environment that is so concentrated on environment um mm -hmm. i think separates FPX from its its core because if you look at the the baseline mineralization it's like oh it's extremely low grade correct um, but it's huge uh, it's right at surface the strip ratio is you know is less than one um, there's a lot of things again that that are very good about it but would probably get lost in the minutia if it didn't have those environmental X factors and I think mm -hmm. will really matter in today's environment um, and so those are the sorts of things and like. A lot of the investments that I made, if you looked at the company, there is certain reasons why I've picked them. And if you can pick them out, I think, again, those all help in anybody's process towards being more uh, successful consistently. Hmm. No, well said. So, I mean, can I ask for a sneak preview, upcoming companies or themes that maybe you're going to explore in the next while? Well, well? <laughs> there's, there's, there's definitely a few companies and the first quarter of next year should be really good. Um, but until it's written in stone, meaning that they've 100%, I don't, I don't want to speculate because I've had numerous emails, like probably five that look really good and there's some rough dates set. But again, until it's kind of set in stone, I don't want to, it looks stupid. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. 
I know, I know. It's uh, my interviews. They are not a go until the recording button has been pressed. That's kind of right. right. Yeah, yeah, right. totally right. Uh, but there, well, go for it. No, you go. No, I was just going to say that there there is a few episodes that that should be shot, and I would say in the next four to five months that are that are uh, like some really really good companies, and I'm looking forward to to shooting those videos. But again, until it's in stone, I don't want to speculate. No, so. I get it. Yeah, I, I, I think you would come on this show from from the graces of your guitar to talk about field notes. I kind of bushwhacked you into talking about risk management. So sorry if oh, I kind of stole, no, stole your honestly, plan here. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, I, I honestly ask anything i i love the conversation so you ask me about anything <laughs> yeah perfect well no i uh, you know what i think i try to crap try to cap it in an hour we got a couple minutes left i might ask just the classic ending you got a couple of picks you want to share with us that you might feel like you know upcoming catalysts or stories you think that are interesting that are developing right now sure um so the num and I'll, I'll get this the number one ranked company in the junior stock for premium portfolio but i think it's a really good pick for today's world because it's a company that I think you're going to see the share price appreciate in the next, let's say, six to eight months. So the company's G Mining, uh, ticker's GMIN. Uh, it's been a great winner for us over the last year. It really is truly a people play. The Gignac family, you know, famously, I don't know, Louis Sr. Um, created a mid-tier producer back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I believe it was Barrick that he sold that to. And then he got into G Mining uh, Services, which was basically an open pit um, engineering firm. And they constructed, you know, open pits around the world for Newmont, for numerous companies. Um, and then over the last probably five or six years, they've, they've done some stuff in South America. Fruta de Norte, they made uh, for mm -hmm. lending mining. Um, mm. Or actually, it wouldn't have been lending mining. It would have been... Um, it was lending because lending bought it from Kinross. So yeah, it would have been lending that they would done it for, but they've done another in the Guyana shield, which is the, the greenstone belt um, where they're working right now, which is Tocanzinho in the Northern part of Brazil. And so to me, this is a people play uh, G mining, you know, has this multi-decade record of success in creating open pit mines. They're 50% through the, the construction right now set for, for their first gold pour next summer. And I think, you know, you see this gold price between $1,900 and $2,000. There's a nice differential that should be closed in the share price, regardless sort of, of, you know, any additives. They just have to finish construction successfully and on time and on budget. And that's what they've done all along. So to me, that's a beautiful uh, uh, play on uh, the people and their execution over the, the next 16 months. Uh, on the oil side, uh, it's a company I'm I'm highly invested in and probably have a little bit too much of my portfolio in, uh, but it's a company called Prospera Energy. Uh, they're based out of Calgary and uh, they've got a project in two projects in Saskatchewan. Um, I'm probably going to see them. They're drilling next week, and so I'll be be visiting site. That's not that's not field notes. That's just me going to site and, and checking in on how things are going. And, uh, and it's a developmental story. It's a really big turnaround story, a company that was in kind of disheveled over the last two or three years, mm -hmm. brought a new management team in. There's still some remnants of that, the, the guys that, that ran the company before in terms of share structure, which is not the greatest, but that's going to get wound over time. And I think realistically, this company ends up over 2000 barrels uh, per day by the end of the year. And I think that's a really key mark because um, that's basically a doubling in production uh, from when I was invested earlier this year. 
And uh, I think the the upside potential, especially with, let's say, $90 per barrel oil is really good. And of course, and I, I would rather this not happen, but if things in the Middle East did get worse and the oil price went up, then, you know, that asymmetric type of play in Prospera kind of kicks in. Um, and I'm highly biased because I do own a lot of it. So, um, so that, that would be my, my second pick. And that's, those are two companies on both ends of the spectrum, I think for people. And, um, yeah, I think those are, those are two good ones. Yeah, the, without speaking too much about those details, I mean, you, you have to understand that the, the, the international geopolitical realities have massive ramifications on commodities, right? And so that's just okay. so. No, Brian, it's been great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, maybe hopefully I can get you on again in a few months' time where you can maybe pick up where we left off or, or keep going on something new. But I, yeah, thank you for your time, Brian. Oh, thank you for having me, Matthew.